one of the tenets of evolution, for example, is that um, what happens to species that don't adapt to environmental change is that they become extinct. And isn't that an interesting thing? You know, we're, we're seeing dramatic changes, and we need to be able to mitigate them. Um, otherwise, it could have a, a very negative impact on all of us as a species. This is Greg Harmon of Deceleration, deceleration.news, and I'm reporting back this week on the progress of the City of San Antonio's Climate Action and Adaptation Plan on the eve of its public release. A year and a half ago, Mayor Ron Nirenberg and our City Council pledged to create a plan that would both chart a course to the rapid reduction of climate pollution contributing to the rise in global warming, while also building a suite of responses intended to prepare our city for the ongoing escalation in extreme weather. This coming Wednesday, roughly 90 volunteers working within six committees engaged in the creation of the city's plan will gather to receive the product of that process two days before the draft is released to the public for a one-month public review period. Although I have attended most of the committee meetings over this last year and served on the CAP Steering Committee, there's a lot that I missed, and there are many fellow committee members that I've not spoken with. More importantly, the residents of San Antonio itself require access not just to the plan's information, but also an introduction to the people who have been engaged for so long on a project with the potential to so dramatically change the course of our city. And while I have very particular positions regarding what I see as our obligations in rising to this moment for working to preserve a habitable climate for all our families, and while I, for instance, would make an economic and moral case for shutting down our last remaining coal plant by 2025, I wanted to clear the table uh, this week and invite my colleagues to speak to their own truths. And to do this, I sought to welcome in a diverse range of participants some politely declined, but most accepted, and I provided a few basic prompts. I asked them, what is it about your life or your background that made you interested to serve on the CAP in the first place? I asked as they understood it what global warming means for San Antonio, and what is it about what has been their experience with the CAP and what their expectations are from it? Opening the podcast uh, with that instructive comment about environmental change and extinction risk was Dr. Carlos Garcia, a fellow steering committee member and dean of the School of Mathematics, Science, and Engineering at the University of the Incarnate Word. Moving forward in this podcast, we'll hear from roughly a dozen committee members or so, and I'll introduce them each as they enter the conversation. Full interviews with each of these guests are available at Deceleration, deceleration.news. Reflecting on how their personal backgrounds inspired them to serve on the CAP are Anita Ledbetter, Executive Director of Build San Antonio Green, and Graciela Sanchez, Executive Director of the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center. You know, I grew up here in San Antonio, um, and I grew up in the southeast side um, in a historically underserved community with, uh, you know, really limited access to fresh and healthy foods or to certain opportunities and resources. And, um... I guess from the time I was very young, obviously access to energy and to water and um, uh, a lot of the uh, um, things that we take for granted today, access to transportation and so on, were were really a struggle growing up. And so it really, uh, the idea of um, 
looking at our resources and being concerned about our environment was something that was instilled in me through experience and my family from the time I was very young. But really when I uh, went to college and uh, here in San Antonio at Arley of the Lake, I took an environmental sociology class and that's when I really learned a lot about uh, our community's um, uh, limited access uh, and limited equity in terms of um, the equal distribution of uh, natural resources and things like renewable energy technologies. I think I actually started noticing that back in 1980 that Dallas had like 40 deaths because or something like that because there were 40 days of 100 degree temperature mm-hmm. and that just was weird mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and yet it made me think about it because as I say when I was an 8, 9, 10 year old child and I was taking classes in parks and recreation we would go downtown to what you know the municipal auditorium which is now the Tobin Center and at one of those little buildings close by there was uh, you know there was a um I want to say temperature gauge. What am I trying? A thermometer. One of those mm-hmm. uh, um, images that you could say you see, and it would say 100 degrees or 99 or 100. And I was always excited by the idea of seeing 100 degrees because mm-hmm. it was so rare, and it always happened in August. It wasn't happening before that. Mm-hmm. It was August, and it was around those you know two weeks in August that we did the August show. So it was an, a thrilling moment for me as a little kid to see that temperature go up to that amount but it was it did happen and it mm-hmm. just happened for a day or two if we were lucky mm-hmm. um now it's it's you know i can tell you that based on my experience it happens a lot and it changed the world next up i have annalisa peace uh Executive Director of the Greater Edwards Aquifer Alliance, followed by Sandra Montalba, who is a sustainability designer at Overland Partners here in San Antonio. Here's what they had to say. I've been following, you know, global warming, climate change since the early 80s. Um, My husband and I used to joke that we'd buy property in post so we'd have beach property at a certain (laughs) date. But, um, you know, this this has been a long time coming, and so I'm really delighted uh, that San Antonio is is finally getting serious and addressing this and, you know, um, making a concerted effort to meet the Paris Accord. For me, this was both um, hugely important, both professionally and personally. I'm a San Antonio native, uh, born and raised here in San Antonio, Texas. Um, I think for me, uh, growing up in the West Side, seeing how... uh, how the climate has had an, a, a direct impact mm-hmm. on the people that are living in the lower sort of strata. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for me, architecture uh, was a way to sort of, you know, to change that. And I've seen, you know, directly how this has had an impact on the people, the elderly that can't afford their air conditioning systems, that can't afford to, to cool their homes mm-hmm. in the summer times and so forth. So this was just a way for me to bring my personal experiences and actually make change. I also wanted to reach out to fellow committee members to understand how they um, how they understand climate change, global warming, its impact today, and what they're anticipating in the years to come. First up is Jeff Arndt. He is the president and CEO of Via Metropolitan Transit. Uh, he's followed by Mitch Hagney, uh, president of the Food Policy Council of San Antonio, and Kaiba White, climate policy and outreach specialist with Public citizen with their branch here in Texas. 
Uh, I will start out by saying that San Antonio probably is in a better position than a place like Miami, Florida, or maybe even Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, because you know the the science would say that you know within this century that Miami would will no longer be a, an uh, environment where people can live well, right. and so to some degree we're shrinking the area in which people can reside. Uh, but at the same time, San Antonio and other areas that are are not quite as vulnerable as that are going to have impacts. Uh, clearly, uh, the temperature rises. We already have a lot of heat. That's part of our that's part of our climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the temperature rises and the need for air conditioning and therefore power to run the air conditioning and the, the problems that people face who can't afford uh, to run their air conditioner and how how we help those people accommodate to heat. Uh, the second area of intensification, because that's what I just think happens as things intensify, uh, more drought, more periods of lack of rain. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, when it does rain, then th- that rain is expected to be a lot more severe, uh, a lot more flooding issues. As somebody who operates a fleet of vehicles on streets, I, I understand fully the impact of street flooding on our ability to get people out and about and around and evacuated. So, mm-hmm. you know, those are the kind of concerns that I think that our city has to face and how we help our vulnerable population especially uh, deal with those kinds of problems. There's a lot of uh, issues associated with climate change. Obviously, the um, deoxygenation of the oceans reduces its kind of primary productivity. There's ocean acidification, which reduces phytoplankton populations. There's disease vector changes so that, like, different pests that carry malaria, et cetera, they can advance in, in different spots. There is water scarcity, um, which can potentially cause um, conflict in, in between individuals. There's extreme uh, weather events that could cause refugees. But the, the issues that I focus on are the way that agriculture both contributes to and is affected by a changing climate. And so the, the, some of the faster descriptions of those are uh, there's a lot of greenhouse gases associated with the way that we produce food. The industrial-style system that we use requires a lot of carbon emissions as a result of fossil fuel use. Uh, about 50% of the cost of food that, that we can find in a normal supermarket comes from the transportation itself. So there's a lot of uh, emissions associated with that. There's a lot of emissions associated with the large, heavy equipment to process it. Um, but uh, there's there's a lot of other aspects as well that um, contribute to climate change, including deforestation or land clearing in order to produce more food or um, using nitrogen fertilizers, which then can run off and uh, volatilize and and go into the atmosphere. And um, a very powerful greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide is a direct result of that excess fertilizer use. So there's a lot of ways that agriculture contributes to climate change. And then there's a lot of ways that climate change uh, makes agriculture a lot harder. Droughts make it more difficult, obviously, um, to have good irrigation, good good production. Large storm events can uh, entirely disrupt crops and, and, and destroy them. Um, large flooding events can do something very similar. Um, but, but also the food system in general is destabilized while there's political and cultural instability because of refugees or conflict. There's going to be a number of uh, climate impacts, and I shouldn't say was because we're already experiencing the impacts of climate change uh, here in central and south Texas. Uh, One of the big ones, of course, is water scarcity. Droughts are becoming more frequent and uh, more severe as well. And on the other side, uh, flooding is also becoming more frequent and more severe. And we're now seeing that those uh, 
areas that were, say, in the 500-year floodplain are now being moved to the 100-year floodplain, and areas that were not in a floodplain at all uh, a few decades ago are now squarely in the floodplain. And what this means is that there's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of uh, property, and a lot of people in harm's way. I also asked committee members about the climate planning process itself. There was uh, a couple months there at the the very front end where UTSA was uh, swapped out as sort of the technical uh, experts or advisors for the private consulting firm Navigant. Uh, Some folks mentioned concern uh, about the selection process uh, or really how the conversation proceeded, whether it was really being driven by the committee members or the community, uh, or whether folks on these committees were being led to certain um, predetermined outcomes, uh, where we line, where we ended up with the, the goals, the community measures, uh, and uh, adaptation uh, policy recommendations. So that uh, was an interesting conversation and, and helped me to see kind of the range of perspectives uh, on on, on all of these issues. So I open up here uh, with uh, Annalisa Peace, uh, again, uh, Bill Barker, a, a longtime transportation official who's uh, now an, an adjunct uh, associate professor at UTSA. Uh, Graciela Sanchez returns, and she is followed by Lisa Martinez, who is a Texas master naturalist here in San Antonio and served on the Water and Natural Resources Technical Working Group. And I should add that all of these interviews are available in full at deceleration.news. So you can click over there and hear from all these uh, guests at length. You know, at, at the very first, I was I was kind of surprised of some people who had applied to, you know, to serve as resources for for this process who, who weren't tapped and was really kind of the whole process seemed kind of disorganized at the outset. Um, in addition to meeting with my own committee, you know, I uh, met with uh, uh, the transportation and land uh, land use and, and was really dismayed at, you know, uh, the way the way the process seemed to be handled, but I think when they brought in uh, the the newer contractors, it seemed to go more smoothly. Now, uh, you know, I, I, at times it was I, I had the feeling, frankly, that uh, we were invited to participate in the stakeholders groups just so that they could say, well, they participated, and then it has our stamp of approval on it. Um, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I, and and San Antonio has a history of doing that, you know. So, uh, but at the same time, I think um, I'm hoping that that this would be an ongoing process because a lot of the issues that the Aquifer Alliance is most concerned about really weren't addressed in this phase of the process, which was meeting the the carbon reduction goals of the Paris Accord. Uh, I think the process has been very comprehensive and thorough, but at the end of the year, we still have like a list of suggestions of things that we might do, Mm -hmm. and I think we kind of started there, frankly. It's been, I've been kind of frustrated that there hasn't been um, more effort into trying to determine what exactly we need to do. Time is short. and uh, the scale is enormous, and those two things create quite a challenge. We, we need to 
as I understand it, to meet the Paris Accord, which uh, our city council has uh, chosen to do, we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by about 90 percent by 2050. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't give us much time, and that's an enormous reduction in emissions. I'm not sure people understand the scale of what's being asked and the, mm-hmm. and the short period of time to do it in. Mm-hmm. In the next 10 years, we need to reduce by like 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. our emissions are probably going up, except for CPS Energy. Our, our uh, Certainly our transportation emissions are probably going up mm-hmm. rather than down. Mm-hmm. And we have had in the past uh, like uh, SA 2020 wanted to reduce our vehicle miles of travel by 10%. Uh, there was a sustainability plan, uh, SA Tomorrow in 2016, that said we need to reduce our vehicle miles of travel by 26%. Mm-hmm. And over the last 20 years, ending in 2015, our vehicle miles of travel have gone up by 6.7%. While we keep having stating these goals, we want to reduce it. So, so we're... Uh, we have all these good suggestions, uh, but we don't seem to be able to uh, deal with the, these performance measures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and quantify the impact of various things. I think early on it was just hard to even <laughs> figure out what what everybody was everybody's role from UTSA to CPS to mm-hmm. you know just community folks and and and. And again, it seemed like, well, we'll give it over to the learned people who are academics or the learned people who are, again, the business community. They know better than the people themselves. Um, and even though our people have academics in there, even though our people include business leaders, even though our people include lay folk, you know. So um, it, it, it's, just, it's sad that this is a t- typical thing that happens in San Antonio that... Um, the environmental justice or social justice, you know, our communities are just disrespected. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in time, um, at least with the, you know, subcommittee I was part of around equity, um, after the second, third, or fourth meeting, um, people, uh, the consultants as well as city staff, calmed down a little bit and allowed us to be, you know, just to speak our truth. And what I loved about that was that other members of the committee uh, got to just teach me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, we taught each other and we learned from each other. And I hope that the city and the consultants took, you know, this information uh and, and understood, you know, again, that nobody was out to uh, beat up on the city or anybody else, that, you know, that the information was to be shared because we're all committed um, to, you know, to to make, again, to improve the lives, to help um, our world, you know, just be more sustainable. And that was, that was good. I have, in general, learned enormous amounts from my other members of the technical working group. I felt that people have been very forthcoming. Um, We have an enormous um, amount of expertise on, for example, community education about water conservation on on that group. We have a, a, a deep experience on introducing new methods of uh, land management through the, the River Authority and others. 
where I felt I needed to make the contribution was bringing the not my educational stuff because that's pretty much obsolete. I mean, you can't tell on the radio, but I'm pretty old. And um, but more on my hands-on experience and knowing that there were willing, trained volunteers in San Antonio called Master Naturalists who are all over town doing really work, really good work, essentially for free, often, however, under the great supervision of people who are uh, professionals in the field. And so I felt like none of that was coming forward, and what we really needed to talk about was this place that we lived viewed through the perspective of someone who was willing to make ordinary um, improvements in it. I mean, so I'm, I'm in general um, grateful to my committee members for, to my working group members, I should say, for tolerating a lot of the kind of honest searching that I have been doing this uh, this year. Okay, that process question back to Dr. Garcia now, followed by Jeff Arndt and Mitch Hagney. We had a, a definite strategy in place. Um, and the strategy was tied to a timeline that we actually had, like, okay, we're going to start here, we end here, um, and that we generated some impact statements about, okay, look, uh, here's what we need to do and here's why we need to do it, um, and then tie that to cost because I think that people are very sensitive to how much things cost um, and that all of it had to be data driven, and that that we needed we had these data requirements that needed to be met. So basically, the the for me the the um, the answer to your question would be that we have a strategy, that we have a timeline, that we know what the impact is, we know what it costs, and that we make informed decisions based on solid data. Um, and I felt like we started that process, we've continued that process. Um, I think. All of it has been fulfilled to some degree. Uh, there's always room for improvement. So can we do better? Can we do more? Certainly. Um, it was a very uh, small amount of time for this project. Uh, given an ideal situation, I suppose we could spend years working on this, and I hope that we do. Um, but as far as the cap is concerned, um, it'd be nice if we all can kind of follow up and, and look at what we've done, look at what we started, reflect on what happened um, and how can we evaluate it and then tweak the pro- tweak it if necessary so that we can have the desired outcome. So first of all, it's the problem itself it can be almost overwhelming, especially to somebody like me who don't spend 100% of my time in that sector, if you will. When you start hearing the implications and particularly the immediacy of the need for relatively dramatic action in order to avoid these these impacts it's it can be daunt it is daunting to me i mean if if there was one impact to me it was you know that we all need to realize that the t- time is short for reaction and that if you don't react you're it's not like you're going to be able to make it better 10 years from now mm-hmm. it's not something you heal it's just something you have to to deal with um and that to me was the biggest impact of the entire process was uh simply to elevate if you will mm-hmm. a level of alarm that I think everyone needs to have that elevated level of alarm. 
Uh, the second thing is, you know, that the, some of the actions that are necessary to really address it are are not uh, small incremental changes, and we, uh, as a society, tend to opt toward small incremental changes. Mm-hmm. And except in times like uh, times of war or. Uh, emergency, like climate emergency, uh, we tend to just want to dip our toe in the water, and this is not something I think we can dip our toe in the water and hope to have mm-hmm. uh, to be successful. I was very uh, grateful that we had the expertise of um, Navigant, which is the organization that the city brought in um, as the kind of liaison organization. They seem to have oftentimes more or better expertise than the individual kind of local experts on, on what scale solutions were feasible or possible. Um, I, so I, I was grateful and, and happy to have them there in that context. One thing about having them there, though, is that they ended up framing a lot of what the discussion ended up being. Yeah. And they kind of led us to a lot of the conclusions that it seemed like they wanted beforehand. I'm torn personally on on this because I would have liked to see maybe more of a grassroots um, origin for a lot of our solutions, but I actually don't know if we had enough expertise in those rooms in order to produce them. So that's, that's my general feeling. So what about the way forward for the cap? Most likely there will be a tenacious fight moving it forward towards that uh, April vote. And I wouldn't be surprised if CPS CEO Paula Gold-Williams uses her new position as head of the San Antonio Chamber of Commerce to animate some animosity within the business community. Kaiba White likewise targets CPS Energy in her comments, identifying them as a linchpin of a successful climate plan, highlighting the need for city council to demand its utility, eliminate fossil fuels on a rapid and an enforceable timeline. What I expect to see in the draft, I expect is going to fall well short of of what is needed to keep, you know, that commitment to the one and a half degree of warming. And that's because CPS Energy simply has to phase out their use of fossil fuels much quicker than they are committing to doing. They have, you know, put forth a plan that envisions burning coal and natural gas out to 2040, 2042, depending on which graph you look at. And that's just not in line with the science. And, you know, I think it was a real challenge for, you know, the folks with the Office of Sustainability and the consultants and then the the volunteers serving on the working groups and the steering committee to really get CPS Energy to do their part and, um, you know, to, to make the commitments that they need to make and to really uh, do the analysis that is needed. Unfortunately, uh, CPS Energy was not able to provide any of the modeling um, that would have been needed to actually evaluate a plan that would have phased out fossil fuels on a, you know, more rapid timeline. And, you know, by that, I mean something like getting to zero by 2030. You know, the idea that we're going to continue burning coal for more than two decades is, well, it's just insane if we're, if we're taking climate change seriously. And, and I think that 
you know, the idea of this plan is that we are taking climate change seriously. So that's where there's going to be a lot of work left to do. And it's going to, I think, fall squarely on CPS Energy's shoulders and therefore also fall on the shoulders of city council to actually hold the utility accountable for doing their part in this plan. And I will say that, you know, I think city council has the authority to do that. Bill Barker and Mitch Hagney inject a healthy dose of skepticism. I'm hoping the city will do the right thing. My concern is that time is short. This this uh, climate change thing uh, uh, has a time has a ticking time clock to it, mm-hmm. and uh, it's time to uh, start implementing uh, as soon as we can and as aggressively we can in order to meet these targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, we, we can't keep coming up with lists of good ideas. We need to start implementing things, I think. Okay. And that means the bond, the bond, next bond program needs to be tied into all of this uh, so that um, we start implementing ASAP. I have worked on comprehensive planning processes with the city before. Um, SA 2020, um, uh, Project Verde, there's... And it, there's oftentimes a, a push towards more planning in the city. Mm-hmm. And some of the objectives that we've already come up with in previous plans have not been uh, fully funded or executed by city council. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that the climate action plan will be implemented, but I would not be surprised to see many of the goals that we've taken a year, year and a half or so to produce fall by the wayside once um, it's lauded and um, people give a lot of applause to the action that took place, only to not have it enter the final kind of budget process. And I expect that when everything is said and done, when the budget proposals end up happening, the business community who fears uh, specific regulations or fears an unfair competitive market will say, well, look, we weren't in these discussions. Only environmentalists were, were there. The business community was largely absent, which is true. I'm sure that they were invited, but the business community that would be bearing the brunt of a lot of the negative incentives were not really there through the process of, of that conversation. Others ranged from optimism to enthusiasm, as you'll hear in the following comments from Sandra Montalba and Anita Ledbetter. You know, 40% of carbon emissions, they say, come from buildings, right? And that's partially, that was a large part in what drew me to architecture, looking at this issue of climate change and global warming and so forth. It was, like, um, somewhat overwhelming. You know, as an individual, I have to ask myself, like, what, where, what is, you know, how much ownership do I take in this? And do I want to be problem-oriented or solution-oriented? And so coming into architecture, understanding that literally from the ground up, I could have impact on on these emissions to help to try to create buildings that are more sustainable, that are, you know, consume less energy, consume less water, and so forth. Um, you know, as architects, we can, only, architects can only do so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're really um, part of what made me so excited about being involved with the city of San Antonio and this committee was being able to sort of voice from the architectural side how much the energy code and building codes have an impact on what we do on our day-to-day. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately for a lot of people, <laughs> that's sort of the the base minimum is often the maximum <laughs> for, you know, a lot of projects. 
um, you know, we have the good fortune in that we have amazing clients at our firm who come to us because they're looking for um, more than that, right? They want something that's not going to be um, devastating to the environment that's going to give back to the community. Mm-hmm. And so we get to push and pull in the day-to-day within the designs, within the confines of the budget and the schedule and the confines of the needs of the client to try to make those things happen. But at the end of the day, I still think like, you know, um, a lot of it is driven from top down. And so I'm really excited at the possibility of what um, the committee has proposed to the city. And I'm really hoping that the leadership will take... um, will listen to what it is that we're proposing because it absolutely has an impact in the day-to-day and what we do on the design side. We're going to come out of this thing with a with some real uh, strategies for adaptation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. for me specifically, this is something that's very important because I tend to be, uh, we need to have uh, things happen now, mm-hmm. right? And there's, I think, a lot of opportunity for us to kind of uh, move into that space pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and other things are going to take a little bit more time to develop. So I think uh, it's a very exciting time for San Antonio, and and it's, uh, you know, just the beginning. It really does take all of us um, working together to um, to come up with a, a viable plan for San Antonio that's going to make the difference in people's lives. And that's something that I kind of want to end with. You know, it's no small thing to uh, work on something um, that's so historically, historically significant as this plan is. Mm-hmm. And I, I think behind all of this uh, are the people of San Antonio, and that's something that I try to think about every day that I work on this plan is that the lives of, of people and how it will be affected. Almost certainly, the draft climate action plan will include an endpoint for zeroing out climate emissions in line with targets being made by a growing number of large cities around the world. Most likely, there will be a handful of actionable items for the city to take up immediately. Unknown is what how, or if these commitments will be entered into as binding policy right out of the gate, but they should be. If the Climate Action and Adaptation Plan is going to be successful, the anticipated April vote can't merely be aspirational. It can't risk being perceived as creating just another document to await space on the shelf and backordered dust. Success means enthusiasm, Enthusiasm comes from challenge and reward, the challenge here being found in the hard targets of carbon reduction, the end of coal and rapid rollback of natural gas, an explosion of solar across the city's rooftops and reliable battery backup. The reward, however, is several steps beyond this mere adapting to weather insecurity. Rather, it's in the restoration of right relationships with the land and with one another, Without this, the plan may prove a harder political sell than it first appeared when the whole world was responding to Donald Trump's declaration that he was taking the United States out of the Paris Agreement. But the promise of a just energy transition and climate justice are in their power to radically transform people's lives by creating new forms of community. So maybe it's no wonder that my skepticism is constantly being tempered by this message. While the challenge to close down the spruce coal plant is grounded in hard, temporal targets, this other component, the one that Carlos Garcia starts to pick at in his closing comments, is one that is constantly unfolding all around us. Something that I found interesting 
um, is that it, you know there's these problems in in France, and we kind of touched on that at, at our last meeting, where people are um, basically demonstrating, and I mean some characterize it as rioting in the street over over what the uh, implementation of what they feel like are burdensome taxes on them. Hmm. And I always think that in our process in the CAP, we spend a lot of time on involving and engaging all st- as many stakeholders as possible. And, and I think if you do that, it, that community piece, that's, that's critical and important. That if you involve everybody, then you tend to um, address the concerns that, for example, these people in France may be having right now mm-hmm. over their plan. And, and um, and I think that for us, if there's a, a piece of it that, I, that at least I personally am very proud of, um, is the fact that we've spent time talking about, talking about equity mm-hmm. and what equity means and the fact that, that it involves everybody, um, or every, every aspect of our community, uh, the wealthy, the not-so-wealthy, the people on the south side, people on the north side, that everybody is uh, involved. And I think that, that trust is accomplished through relationships, and when we all build that very solid relationship in our community, then I think that we're going to be in very good shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 